Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep, there's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast with me, George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar. Today, we're bringing you episode one in a new series of Wahoo Fitness, over the course of the next five weeks, we'll be doing a deep dive on all things training. Along the way, we'll be joined by expert guests to guide us through the latest thinking in the world of sports science. For episode one, I chat to Matt Cassin, Wahoo's principal sports scientist, to set the scene with a training jargon buster. Do you know your FTP from your VO2 max and your energy systems from your training zones? Well, it's a fascinating chat, so let's get into it. But before we start, please do leave us a rating on your podcast platform. It helps us reach more cyclists just like you. And if you have a question you want us to answer through the course of this series, then make sure you send us an email at podcast at bikeradar.com. Now, on to the pod. Mac, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. It's great to have you back on. How are things over in Boulder today? They are good. It's un- unseasonably warm here, so I can't complain too much. Good. Well, uh, yeah, I think we've had much of the same here in the UK and Europe. So we're uh, holding on to the end of summer before we uh, go headfirst into, into autumn and then to winter which will actually take uh, us into indoor training season, which is a, a useful and unplanned segue because we are going to discuss uh, what well, we're going to start of our opening episode in our training series today, and we're going to do a jargon buster. So hopefully set the scene for the weeks to come. But before we get started on today's episode, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? You've been on the podcast before, but you're a principal sports scientist over at Wahoo. So what does that mean day to day for you? Yeah, so day to day, my role is essentially around training experience with Wahoo. So what that means is any um, integration for for hardware or specifically our software that um, we can leverage to help people train better, train smarter, become a better athlete. That's sort of my main role, and it and it's been um, a dynamic one. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I get to do stuff like this. Get to talk about uh, with training like folks with yourself. Um, but yeah, my my goal day to day is just to help. Uh, people who use Wahoo products become a better athlete. Well, it's good to have you on because hopefully we're going to help some of our listeners today become better riders and better athletes. And as I said, in this episode, we're going to be setting the scene for the weeks ahead by explaining some of the fundamentals of bike training with a jargon buster. So we've got 10 commonly used training terms to run through, what they are, why they matter, regardless of whether you're a pro or you're dipping your toe into the water for the first time. I'm sure we'll cover some uh, supplementary terms along the way as well through the discussion. So uh, shall we just get into it? Let's dive on in. Great. Well, let's uh, let's start at the top with our first term, structured training. Now, this is a term that's become commonplace over the past few years, particularly with the rise of indoor training apps uh, like Zwift and uh, Wahoo System, and with it, the accessibility of structured training itself. Um Equally alongside that, we've had the rise of power meters and smart trainers introduced in power, which is a term we'll come on to. But let's start with structured training. What do we mean when we hear the term structured training? What does that mean to an everyday athlete? 
So the idea of structured training is going out and having purpose for your ride. We all enjoy a good group ride on the weekend with our friends, but that wouldn't necessarily be called structured training. Um, Structured training can refer to just a singular workout, having specific intervals you're doing, a specific climb repeat you're doing. It can also generally be referred to as long-term, week-by-week, month-by-month, having a, a clear plan and periodization, which is one we'll get to later. These All these terms intermix, which is great. Um, by the end of this, you might need to listen to this one again, because we're probably going to use terms we don't explain until later a couple times. Uh, so repeat listening is probably useful for this. But structured training, yeah, like a week-by-week basis, going in with intent, having something you're working towards, hitting specific workout targets. Um, to me, the biggest sign of if you're actually doing structured training is doing recovery rides. No one likes to ride slow or ride super easy, but that's like the biggest green flag that you're actually doing proper structured training. I wasn't planning to ask you this, but seeing as you've mentioned um, a green flag, what's the biggest red flag that you're not doing structured training? The biggest red flag there would be um, you know, not having intent or purpose, just kind of going with the flow. They say, just do whatever you're going to do on that day. It's just because it's what you want to do, not because it's what's good to make you better. And not everyone needs structured training. Not everyone needs structured training year round, but it's certainly if you have a goal of improving, sometimes you need to do stuff you don't want to do, whether that's an easy day when you don't want to do an easy day or a really hard day when you don't want to do a hard day. Well, that's led me on to my next question, which I did want to ask, and that's why is structured training so important? What are the benefits to someone, regardless of whether you have, say, three or four hours to train a week all the way through to a pro who might be doing 25 or 30 hours so the so the benefit is making sure that you're kind of keeping the right balance of energy expenditure proportional to how much you can recover from that energy expenditure you can push your body pretty hard but the only way it can adapt to that is by having in structured rest time during that so the benefit no matter how much time you have or what duration is is you can by having structured training you can really maximize the time that you do have available to make sure that you're getting the most out of it some people do enjoy just riding and flogging themselves just because they enjoy it i think most people do it because they want to get better they want to have it's fun to ride a bike fast and you ride a bike faster by either dropping a couple grand on new equipment or getting fitter and i think we can all uh no one's going to complain about getting fitter. Um, and so the the real importance to anyone is just maximizing the time you have available and making sure you're getting the most return on your fitness investment. And is it you mentioned this earlier, or you alluded to it in terms of having a goal, but I can imagine if you do commit to a structured training plan, whether that's a short-term plan or a long-term plan, that it is important to have some kind of goal to work towards so you can create the structure. Yeah, absolutely. Having knowing what you're working towards can be really, really helpful. One common thing we have um, in in System X, there's a mental training program in there. One of the big ones there is goal setting. Um, if you have a specific event, it's pretty easy to to nail on. And be like, oh, I'm getting ready for steamboat gravel, so that's what I'm working towards. You might not have a specific event, and it can be a little more of a gray area. Um, but you can still define goals, and that's reminding yourself of that during hard efforts or like between efforts or when like you feel really knackered can be really motivating. Um, Structured training at its heart is about discipline, but you need motivation to maintain discipline. And the best way to maintain that motivation is having a goal that you are working towards and, and are confident about achieving. It doesn't, doesn't mean it needs to be something that's 
as long as you get it to the end of the month, you've made it with no effort. And it also doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to win the tour next year. That's my goal. Like there needs to be some realistic boundaries in there. Um, but having that set is really key to laying out what you should be doing and keeping you motivated to, to stick to it. And my last question here before we move on to our second term, which has lead us on to our second term, is it important to use data to create structure and to measure progress and to give you numbers and a sense of purpose to work towards? So whether that's power or heart rate. You'll probably hear me say this a lot throughout this five these five episodes, but I'll say it depends. It really is like, yes, objectively, it is important. You need benchmarks. You need to see how you're improving. At the same time, people can get into sort of analysis paralysis where like they're overly critical, over analyzing, looking at some of these numbers. Um, I, there were certainly points in my racing career where I'd get way too worked up by missing, you know, being five watts low on the target I set myself and becoming like hypercritical and, and way overthinking it. Um, so there's there's a fine balance. And, and sometimes just as an objective coach and, and scientist, yes, you need pre, pre and post results to know what you've been doing is working. Um, but you also need to be able to disconnect from that. I think I know our next term's power, so we'll get into that, but people love looking at power, heart rate, seeing those trends. But at the same time, you need to just be able to dissociate from that and just enjoy riding your bike. Certainly at, at low points of my career, like the way over obsessing on numbers takes away a lot of the joy of, of riding a bike. So I would say it depends. Yes, it's important, but you shouldn't be basing, shouldn't feel like a life or death situation. Well, as you said, it does lead us on to our next term, which is power. And I think this is an important one, both in the context of what you've just said. I think it's really important that people understand what power is and how to use it without getting into that analysis paralysis. But also power is far more accessible in terms of the power meters that are built into smart trainers, the increasingly affordable options and the varied options that are available to fit on a bike, whether that's a, a, a crank set or pedals. But to start with the absolute basics, what is what do we mean by power in the context of bike training? So in, in the, the context of um, riding a bike, uh, power is, it's, it's a watt, which is a measure of, it's one joule per second. Joule is a unit of energy and per second. So it's a measure of work. There's a few other ways to calculate power in the, in the instance of cycling, you're looking at the, the torque. So the force you're putting onto the crank arm and then the velocity of that, how hard are you pushing and how fast are you pushing? You can get to the same wattage by pedaling really slowly with a lot of force or pedaling really fast with minimal force. Um, it's a really useful metric for cyclists. And it's one of the few sports out there that we have this really great, basically energy expenditure device that's that's highly accurate because it allows you to really gauge your efforts and, and learn how to pace things. Knows you can help maintain specific targets right in the right zones, which we'll get into again later. Um, but it's it's a really handy device that just allows you to very accurately measure the output that your body is doing. Well, we're going to tease another term that we will come on to. It's the next one. That's heart rate. But uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the fact that you can use both heart rate and power, whether individually or or together. But why is uh, power a useful term um, aside from heart rate? What are the benefits to using power uh, as a specific way of measuring your output on the bike? 
So it's, it's an instantaneous measure of the output you're doing. So that in itself is really handy. It's also because, again, it's a joule per second is one watt. You can look at energy expenditure so you can know basically how much you need to be fueling. I know there's like, if you read any nutrition article, it's like aim for 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour. If you're riding really easy or don't, aren't putting out that much power, if you're a smaller rider or something, you probably don't need that much. If you're a lot bigger, you're putting out more power, you're expending a lot more energy, you probably need more than that. Um, so it's, it's really handy in terms of monitoring the energy expenditure. And that is also a key component to structured training of how much energy are you expending over a series of weeks and how much time do you need to recover from that. And what's per kilogram? That's a, a, a term that's very much linked to power. And uh, I think sometimes we hear of the insane power to weight ratios of some of the best pro riders out there, power to weight being that mm -hmm. what's per kilogram ratio. Um, but specifically, what is this and why does this matter? Why is it such a key um, term that often feeds off of power? Why does it matter to riders? Yeah, so basically a watts per kilo is just a direct measure of how many watts per kilogram of body weight are you putting out? You look at the pros over some climbs, it's like 6.5 watts per kilo, which, you know, is a massive amount for any duration of time. Um, but for long extended periods, it's, it's quite significant. It's, it's really key because the higher your Watts per kilo, the faster you'll, you'll go uphill, not necessarily on the flats on the flats. There's a term called Watts per CDA, which is coefficient of drag area. Um, that is really what determines how fast you go on a flat course. Um, but historically, it's a lot easier to measure your weight than it is to measure your CDA. So it's a lot easier to just look at, okay, I got on the scale this morning and I averaged 300 watts for 20 minutes. So I'm riding at four watts per kilo right now. Um, it is one of those benchmarks that can help you track your performance. Like for example, if you have a training block where you're aiming to lose a bit of weight, your power might stay the exact same over that training block. But if you lose a few kilos, you'll have a higher watts per kilo, you'll have more power to weight. And that means you'll be able to go uphill faster. Conversely, you can increase your wattage and increase your weight and have no net change there. But if your CDA stays constant, then you have more power, then you're going to be faster on the flats. So it's really one of those, it's a way to look at the power output relative to body size. It's one, it's helpful for you to track your own changes. And then two, it, it's generally an easier thing to compare one rider to another. We, we look at, okay, I can climb at three watts per kilo right now. My friend can climb at three and a half watts per kilo. They're probably going to drop me. <laughs> but you might have the better watts per CDA, so you can either catch them on the flats on the other side, or maybe you've already dropped them going into the climb. Yes, or you just rip, rip past them on the descent. That was always my MO. <laughs> Finally, before we move on to heart rate, uh, I think anyone who's linked a bike computer to um, a power meter or has used an online, a piece of online training software may have seen the terms normalized power and average power. Average power, I'm very uninformed in this area, but I think we can say it's fairly simple in terms of the average power produced over the course of a ride. But how does it differ from normalized power and why is normalized power often the go-to figure? So this might get a little math heavy for some people. So if, if you need to dissociate for a second, because maths isn't your strong suit, that's that's fine. But basically, normalized power, it's trying to look at more of a rolling average of the output. So it's taking, depending on which software you're using, it's either 25 second or 30 second rolling average of power that's raised to the fourth power. 
that's then averaged and you then take the fourth root of that value and that gets normalized power. And why we do that is because say you have a ride where you're doing short, really high power efforts and really easy in between. If you just look at average, you know, that average power might be kind of low. When you use the normalized power formula, it basically weights those higher power efforts a bit more. So when you have normalized power, it can be significantly higher than average power. It's not really possible for normalized power to be lower than average power. Um, But when you look at the difference between those two, you get something called variability index. And that can kind of show you how, you know, a high intensity workout will have a higher variability index because your normalized power is going to be significantly greater than your average power. Um, it, it is the normalized power is then tied into other terms like intensity factor and training stress score that can all be used again to kind of track the, your effort and your output kind of monitor what was the load of a single training session. You can then take that load and look at over longer periods of time to see trends. And that's again, how people can monitor for structured training when they're going really hard and when they might need to, to back off and take some rest time to recover from those big efforts. Great. Well, we've covered power there. So let's move on to our third term and that's heart rate. Uh, power is clearly a, a hugely in-depth topic um, where you can just tip your toe in or you can use a coach to really go super deep on all of the associated terms to power. But taking things back to basics, why is heart rate still so important? So heart rate's really valuable. I know I Everyone I've coached, it's a requirement that they have a power meter and a heart rate monitor and that they use both of them for like 95% of their workouts because while power is the absolute output of what you're doing, heart rate is still gives you a lot of insight into how your body is actually responding to those efforts. One thing with heart rate is that it has a delayed response. So you do a sprint now, it's going to take a few seconds, 30 seconds, a minute for your heart rate to catch up. Basically, there's a lot of sensors in your body from baroreceptors, chemoreceptors, they look for all these different signs of, okay, you're expending energy and doing something hard. So you need more oxygen going to all your muscles. So we need to increase your heart rate um, to get deliver that blood with that oxygen to the muscles that need it. Um, It's also highly impacted by things like hydration status. If you're dehydrated, your heart rate will go up because the main source of uh, basically your sweat is the plasma of your blood. So as you sweat a lot, you lose plasma volume. So your heart has to beat faster to deliver the same amount of, of, uh, blood to your muscles. It can be impacted by medication. So like caffeine, everyone, I think most people have had some caffeine. It's the widest used drug in the world. So the majority of people have had some tea or coffee at some point in their lives that can have an impact on heart rate. It can increase your heart rate. Um, all of these things are are methods to help track, you know, changes in your physical output. You can look at maybe for a long ride, you do the same power, but your heart rate might be lower. That could be a good sign that you're improving in fitness because you're using less, basically your, your body's having to work less hard to do the same effort. Um, it's really a cornerstone. It's like one of the longest tracked things in in sports science um it's it's really easy to track most watches these days have the photo sensors on the back that can track it it it's really 
there's not a lot of reasons not to record your your heart rate uh, this day and age. It gives you a really good insight into how your body's handling the the efforts you're putting it under. Related to that, do you think that there's become almost a, an over reliance, or perhaps things have become too skewed too heavily towards? power when there is heart rate which might not be perfect as a metric but it is still there as a really simple accessible and ultimately from a tech point of view cheap metric to access i do think there's been a, a big shift on just over reliance on power um there i know there are plenty of of elite athletes who who don't wear a heart rate monitor maybe they don't like how a chest strap feels um maybe they just don't find any value in it it's really to me the most useful in terms of, of training, of making sure you're staying in the right zones. Um, I'll actually say that I know this isn't on your list of the 10 terms, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. Um, not that I haven't already thrown in additional for, terms at this go point. Go for but, it. The more the merrier. Um, so rate of perceived exertion is, to me, the third most important thing. And from my view, the best training is done when you have power, heart rate, and rate of perceived exertion, and you're constantly mentally checking in on all three of those to make sure you're doing the right effort. Just because you're hitting the right power, if it's supposed to be an easier ride, if it feels really hard, that's a sign you need to go easier. If your heart rate's really high, that's a sign you need to go easier. There's internal heart rate and rate of perceived exertion are more internal metrics of how's your body reacting to the power you're doing. And I think they're heart rate and RP are, are vastly underutilized. They're incredibly useful tools. They're really key, whether you acknowledge it or not, rate of perceived exertion is massively important to how you pace an effort. If you have no ability to check in on yourself of how hard you're going, there's no way you can empty the tank over a 30 minute climb properly. So you do, your body is always looking at your RPE, but it's whether you are cognitively aware of it and trying to see if it matches up with what's your power look like, what's your heart rate look like. So clearly technology has moved on a long way in the last few years, but if we were to turn back the the clock uh, or the calendar 10, 15 years, and I've got an old school training diary in front of me, um, a nice old fashioned notepad, would you encourage someone to have columns for power, heart rate, RP across the course of um, a ride or a training session or a week to fully understand not only the results that they're producing on the bike, but how their body's reacting to that. Absolutely. And it's really, when you're, when you're wanting to monitor how your training's going, it's really about the trends in all three of those. Say your, your power is staying the same, your heart rate's dropping a little bit, but then your RP is steadily increasing over the course of a block. That's normal. As you get fatigued, your heart rate's going to drop. Your power might stay the same. As you get fatigued, your RP is going to be higher that's a trend you should expect to see. And it's a good sign that, okay, now is when I take a few days easy, take an easier recovery week to allow myself to adapt. Those Seeing those and being able to look back is really insightful. It can also help you identify um, some other factors that are potentially negatively impacting or positively impacting your training. Say every Wednesday, when you look back, you notice that your RPE is high for the workout. And then you think, well, Wednesday's the the weekly meeting that I dread going to, and it drains a lot of my mental energy. And so, okay, maybe if you can see that trend, recognize, okay, that meeting kind of takes a bit out of me. I'm going to make sure I don't have really hard workouts on that day because I've just never felt great on that day. It's those types of things that, you know, you need to be able to recognize in yourself and, and make 
changes because we're all different. We all have different things that work for us that don't work for us. We have general guidelines for do this amount of power for this amount of repeats and et cetera. But really we're all unique individuals and you need to take ownership of like, hey, how can I track these things to better understand myself? And it, and it doesn't take that much time. It's literally at the end of every ride, you just write down on a calendar what your RPE was. A really, really simple, even if you don't have power, don't have heart rate, you can just look at, okay, what was my average RPE over the ride and just multiply it by the number of hours. And there you have a l- metric for, okay, what's your load? And you can see, okay, I've had three weeks of a lot of higher PE and long duration, so I should probably back it off a bit. You don't need all the latest technology to monitor and track how your body's feeling after a hard training session. Well, I think we've unintentionally expanded this list to 11, but I think that's a really important one to get in for that exact reason in that, of course, technology is making or can have the potential to make everyone a faster athlete, but also there are tools out there that you can use that cost very little or cost nothing in the case of RPE. And uh, um, completely unplanned, but coincidentally, we also ran a feature on rate of perceived exertion on Bike Radar very recently in the last couple of weeks. So I'll drop a link to that into the into the show notes. Um, one final question, uh, out of personal interest more than anything, but just briefly on heart rate. Does resting heart rate matter? Because I think sometimes this is almost worn as a badge of honour amongst endurance athletes as to... I, I, I saw on my on my smartwatch that my resting heart rate has dropped below 50 or 60 or 40 or whatever benchmark you're at. So does it matter and is it a sign of overall fitness? It, it definitely is a sign of overall fitness. It can be influenced by a lot of things, but generally speaking, as an endurance athlete, as you get, as you do endurance training, your heart will get a bit bigger. The amount of, because what that's doing is you're pumping more blood per beat. And so as your heart rate is dropping, it's sort of a sign that you've got a lot of blood and your heart can move a lot of it um, with minimal effort. So yes, it is definitely a badge of honor. I do know it has some um, other significant things. I don't know if this is the case um, in your neck of the woods, but but here if you're in the hospital and they put a pulse ox on you, the uh, machine will beep if it goes under 60 which can be really annoying if you're fit. They can manually disable that, but they can't disable it below 40. And so I've had a number of surgeries and during my fitter times when I'd be like waking up from the anesthesia, my heart rate would be in like the mid thirties. And I like found that very oddly rewarding that I'm breaking this, the protocol that this machine is supposed to let the doctors know that you're about to die because your heart rate's so low. I took, I did take that as a badge of honor that no, I'm just, really fit right now there you go um i don't know if that is the case in in the uk um one of our listeners might be able to um provide some insight on that okay well we've already touched on how power and heart rate are used to calculate training zones and that's our next term we're actually going to cover this in a lot more detail in a future episode so we can go fairly brief on this one but um in terms of the the top line what exactly are training zones what do you mean when you uh, when you use that term so, so training zones is a way to break down um, individual efforts based on either power or heart rate. Um, they don't. There's a bunch of different methods for for how you divide those two. There's no. I won't say there's any right or wrong ways to do it. I'll take that back. There's no exactly right way to do it. There's probably some very wrong ways to do it. But most of what you, if you find something online, it's going to be generally pretty close. Um, one thing, um, my belief is that power zones and heart rate zones don't 
have to match up and they shouldn't just because of the innate physiology behind some of the higher intensity zones. And I know we talk about this in the future, but those don't really rely on oxygen delivery as much. So the heart rate component isn't as indicative of, of higher, like absolute peak intensity stuff. So generally speaking, I use seven power zones and five heart rate zones because I think that divvies up, um, bins things into nice, uh, clean, clean sections. And basically you want to have those so you can have pretty clearly defined ranges of what you should be doing. Um, you get basically an upper and lower limit for power and heart rate for each zone. And so if you're going out to do a specific workout at a specific zone, you'll know, okay, I should be between 190 and 210 watts and between 140 and 146 beats per minute for this effort. And that's the sort of thing where, again, when you go out and start training, you know, you have those ranges to be targeting and then you constantly, you add RPE in there. Okay. This should be about a four on the RPE scale. You kind of constantly go back and check on each of those. Is my power in the right zone? Yes. Is my heart rate? Oh, my heart rate's a bit high. So I should probably back off the power a bit to bring my heart rate back in or no, my RP is really low and the power is like at the upper zone, but my heart rate's also really low, then okay, you can probably go a bit harder. It's having those key reference points allows you to make those sort of on-the-fly smart decisions versus just muscling through whatever has been exactly written down in your training for that day. So from a, a training point of view, is one of the key benefits of using heart rate zones the fact that you can target a specific um, goal or adaptation for a given session so if you were heading out using the the recovery example earlier you said recovery is a really a key part of a, a structured training plan if you're going out for a recovery ride and you're keeping an eye on your heart rate and or your power you're actually ensuring that you are recovering and not moving into the next zone which is endurance yes exactly heart rate is very important to look at when you're doing recovery rides generally speaking a recovery ride you should no matter how fit you are, like even the world tour folks we work with, the recovery ride is under a hundred Watts, which for them will be 30% or less of FTP. And I know we get into FTP a bit later, but basically it's a really, really easy effort and having the heart rate there kind of keeps you in check because it's an easy ride, but you want it to be embarrassingly easy. I was always told by my coach, and then I've given this to my athletes is you should be you should go out for your recovery ride, like pretty much kitted up as normal. And you should feel almost mortified, embarrassed to be seen riding that slow. You should have old grandmas, especially now with e-bikes, just blitzing past you with their grocery bags full. Like it should be that easy. And you can make sure of that by having your heart rate be well below the acceptable uh, zone one heart rate value. Uh, not to put you on the spot, although I'm sure you know the zones off the top of your head. What are the seven power zones that you use? Not necessarily in terms of the specific uh, ratios or, or the specific upper and lower limits, but what are the terms within training zones that, sh that people should be keeping an eye out for from one to three to seven? Yeah, so one is recovery, two is endurance, three is tempo, four is threshold, five is VO2 or maximal aerobic power, uh, six is anaerobic capacity, and then seven is neuromuscular power. Um, that's like the most... I'd say that's probably the most common seven zone breakdown. They might have slightly different names on some of those. So we're going to dive into a few of those a little bit later in terms of endurance, um, sweet spot or tempo. I've got some questions around that one and VO2 max. 
But uh, I'm actually going to go back to a term that you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. And this is another one that is often worn as a a badge of honour in endurance circles or amongst uh, road cyclists in particular. And this is our next term. It's FTP. Um, What is FTP? What does FTP stand for to start with? So it stands for functional threshold power. And I believe the... uh the, the guy who coined the term, Andy Kogan, I believe his current definition is the power that you can maintain in a semi-quasi-steady state for between 40 and 60 minutes. So pretty vague. <laughs> but basically the idea is that it is a benchmark of how what's the maximum output you can do for around one hour. Again, some people it can be a little shorter than that. Very few people it's much longer if it is, then I'd be arguing that maybe that's not actually your FTP, but it's it's really foundational to training because it's it is um, for those bottom training zones, recovery, endurance, tempo, threshold. It is the foundational number that sets those. So you have say an FTP of three hundred, then okay, fifty percent below is zone one. So that's one hundred fifty watts. Zero to one hundred fifty watts is zone one power. And then same thing, you go up zone two, zone three, zone four. It acts as a clear, it's how you clearly define those training zones. And it will also have an associated um, threshold heart rate value. So the heart rate that's associated with that steady state power for that duration. And then that's the benchmark that's used for setting the power zones. Or I mean, sorry, that's the benchmark that's used for the heart rate zones. But now we can move on to our next term. Now, this is one I'm really interested in because it's not one that I know a huge amount about, but I think, I think I'm right in saying it's linked to FTP and threshold. And the term is energy systems, and specifically that we have both aerobic and anaerobic energy systems. So what's going on here when I describe energy systems or when I try to describe energy systems? Because I will leave that to you. Yeah, so you can you can I'll probably save people from this. Um, you can get into some real nuanced stuff with with energy systems, but but the idea is that your body is needs ATP to contract your muscles, and your body can produce ATP a number of different ways. Um, you can divide that into two simple ways, and one is with oxygen, so aerobic, and one is to produce it without oxygen, which is anaerobic. I know my um, coach and mentor really dislike the term anaerobic because that means without oxygen, but you're tapping into that system once you've used all the oxygen you can. So it's not that there's no oxygen involved. It's just, you've, you've run out of what's available. So it's maybe a bit nuanced and nitpicky, but it's something that always my mind goes to when we talk about anaerobic energy systems, but within the aerobic system, again, it's using oxygen to create ATP. That's quite efficient. That's what the good old mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, um, that's its main function. It takes oxygen and spits out a lot of ATP. You can produce ATP faster, but less efficiently without oxygen. And there's a few different ways to do it. And generally speaking, those reserves are, are tapped out quicker. So whenever you think of anaerobic energy, that's really high intensity stuff. Um, it does differentiate between instantaneous, which again, I won't go into the nuances of phosphocreatine and stuff like that, but basically you have like an immediate ready source that can instantly be used. You have a secondary source that can be exhausted over like a minute or you can stretch it out a bit, but basically as the duration kicks in and you've depleted those, you have to rely on aerobic energy. 
Okay, so when we, um, if we're going back to training zones and uh, there's a rider who's been prescribed a training session, an endurance training session, um, but then the next day they're perhaps doing an, an anaerobic tra- training session or one that relies heavily on the anaerobic system, sprinting, for example, um, what demands does that put on them as a rider? But also what demands does it put on them in terms of the way that they approach uh, fueling and nutrition through any given ride? Yeah, that's a good um that's a really good question. Um, when you, one key thing is that the actual physiological response to those two sessions is, is different. You can say you have the same average power, um, over the course of, of a ride. Um, normalized power, as we talked about, might be different between those two because you have a sprint with recoveries versus just straight endurance. But when you're having those really high intensity efforts, it takes more out of your body. There's like a proportional extra weight in terms of the stress it's put you under. Um, within that, you need, you can use fat and carbohydrate oxidatively. So in those aerobic systems, you can make uh, ATP using carbohydrates or fat. For high intensity energy, you can only use carbohydrate. You cannot use fat anaerobically. So when you're doing lower intensity endurance work, a greater proportion of that energy is going to be coming from fat. So you still need to fuel some of that carbohydrate, but it's not as important. When you get to really high intensity sessions, you have to use carbohydrate to complete, your body has to use carbohydrate to complete that. And so it necessitates that you keep your carb stocks up. Basically you're properly fueled for those sessions. And that might not as much have to do with what you're eating directly during the workout, especially if it's an hour or shorter, it does have a lot more to do with what you need to do going into the session. Um, generally speaking, when you eat during a ride, it's going to take 60 to 90 minutes for that food to make it to your system anyway. So if it's a short ride, um, it can definitely, if you have a sports drink or something, it will positively impact your RPE. Your RPE will be lower for the same effort if your body is sensing there's carbohydrate fuel on the way. Um, but it's not going to be the difference in your body's whatever you have going into that for carbohydrate stores is what you have. And that's, that's what you're going to be limited with. You're, you're pretty much always using carbs when you're even doing endurance. Um, I know people talk about fat adaptation and that's a whole other topic that we won't get into here, but you're always going to be using carbs when you're doing proper endurance and you're absolutely going to be using carbs when you're doing high intensity work. So it's always important to fuel adequately. And is that the, you know, when we consider, this isn't a term that we, or that I hadn't planned to cover here, but when we think of bonking in the context of cycling, uh, is that because you have that limited pool of carbohydrates and if you don't replenish it quickly, particularly if you're doing hard efforts, you'll run out of that carbohydrate very quickly and your body will say, no thanks, I'm not interested, time to go home. Yeah, exactly. The good old, the, the dreaded bonk, you've, you've not had enough food, you've not consumed enough carbohydrate. Again, your body can't produce that energy anaerobically without carbohydrate. So you are literally stuck in first gear when that happens, no matter how much you want to try and redline the system, it's not going to go any faster. So that is that feeling that I think every serious, anyone who's ridden a bike for more than two hours has definitely experienced that at some point. And, and that is the cause, like your body's just saying, all right, you're not giving me the energy I need to do these efforts. So that's it. Mm, I remember my the, the first time that I bonked on the bike. I need to be careful here, um, but it was 
yeah, it was horrific. I would never felt anything like it in terms of how my muscles felt, in terms of just the the absolute lack of energy. And I wasn't far from home, but I limped home, and I haven't uh, yeah experienced that level of energy depletion since. And and this was just shortly after I'd started cycling, so perhaps became a bit more aware aware of um, nutrition and, and what my body was capable of. But um, yeah, when when you get it bad, it's uh, yeah, it can be it can really put you in a box. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned endurance. Um, a couple of minutes ago so let's talk a bit more about endurance because that is our seventh term cycling on the whole is seen as an endurance sport but what exactly do we mean when we say the word endurance so when we talk about endurance if we're talking about training zones it's really referring to that zone two um, range for heart rate and for power Um, you could also just think about it in general of you know endurance capacity is sort of the ability to continue to ride many many hours in like ride for five hours would be a, a sign of your endurance capacity. Um, generally, we call cycling an endurance sport because it's a sport that lasts for several hours at a time. So it's not a, um, you need that sort of endurance capacity to perform. Um, and like we talked about, the anaerobic energy systems are really short duration. Anytime you're doing long, continuous effort, that's going to predominantly become aerobically driven which is where sort of the notion or the differentiator between endurance sports and and more sprint sports or there's sprint endurance sports there's a whole range and people like to say different things but yeah when we think of cycling as an endurance sport it's because it's long lower intensity generally speaking so we're going to cover as well as endurance we're going to cover a couple more of the uh the key training zones um tempo and vo2 max but endurance that's zone two isn't it so it's the first step up out of recovery and you know is the idea here to i mean what is the idea here what's what is the 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 purpose and the benefit of spending a lot of time in this zone um if you're on a training plan yeah so endurance is really key to it's the right intensity level to stress um and promote what we call mitochondrial biogenesis so it's it makes your body produce more mitochondria and the more mitochondria you have the more oxygen you can take in and the more ATP you can create. So endurance is makes this really nice um, intensity level that your body is forced. It wants to do as much of that aerobically as possible. It wants to use fat to do that. It wants to use the efficient oxidative carbohydrate pathway to do it. And when you do that for long amounts of time, you're stressing that system. And so your body's saying, okay, if we're going to do that again, I need more mitochondria. So my body's going to start cranking out more mitochondria with those specific enzymes that facilitate the aerobic um, metabolism. So it's really, it's, it's an absolute necessity for, for cycling because it is an aerobic sport. Now, if you're short for time, then it's not, if you only have four hours a week, you don't want to just do four hours of zone two because it's not very high intensity, but it's still a foundational component of any proper structured training. And that's, that specifically is a topic that we're going to go into much more detail on a, a future episode, the idea of uh, using base training or what's typically or historically seen as base training, those long steady rides in zone two um, alongside interval sessions if you are short on time. And I think we can touch on it briefly here, but I think some of the thinking has changed quite quickly here on how you can use those two alongside each other to um, get the most or the most bang for your buck out of a relatively short amount of time on the bike in any given week. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of a it's always a balancing act between. Um, yeah, again, it, it, in my mind, it always comes down to energy expenditure and how your body's creating that energy, and it's always a balancing act between how how you go about that. Because again, how you produce that energy is what your body's going to respond to and say, okay, I need to be better at doing that in the future. So I need to make changes X, Y, and Z because I did low intensity or X, Y, Z because I did high intensity. Well, we covered endurance in brief there. So let's move on to the next one. And in terms of our next term, we're going to step up from zone two, endurance. We start with recovery. That's actually something we've spoken about a bit throughout this podcast, but we've just spoken about endurance in zone two. So we're going to step up to zone three. Now in the in the show notes, in my notes before we started recording, I described this as sweet spot. I think, and you can obviously tell me uh, whether I'm right or wrong here. I think actually it's it's tempo, but can tempo and sweet spot be used interchangeably? And actually, what the hell am I talking about when I say tempo and sweet spot? So I, some people would say they could be used interchangeably. I'm not necessarily easily convinced of, of that. I think um, sweet spot is generally referred to as as the an intensity just below your threshold, your FTP. Um, tempo is a bit lower intensity than that. It's it's just above endurance. But in in our definition of zones, our threshold zone basically covers a bit below FTP and a bit above FTP. And that it's that bit below FTP that I think most people would consider sweet spot to fall into. Um, so from my methodology, um, tempo is different than sweet spot. Um, tempo is an, an interesting one because it's where people spend more time than they should on the whole. Generally speaking, when people try to go do zone two, they end up spending a lot of time in that tempo zone. And that's can be an issue if you're not, there is a place for tempo workouts, but if the goal is a zone two workout, that's when riding at tempo can be detrimental because basically it's a higher intensity. So you're shifting away from the fat oxidative energy production. So that shifts sort of your body's response for the producing more mitochondria kind of shifts away that it's, you do end up spending more energy because you're working harder. You're putting out more Watts for the, for the duration. So that's going to add more fatigue to you. So generally speaking, tempo is hit more often than it should be, but not because people are doing too many tempo workouts. It's because they're riding zone two too hard. So we can give our listeners uh, two for the price of one in this segment in terms of covering tempo, and we'll move on to sweet spot specifically in a second. But if tempo is zone three, if someone does specifically set out to ride a tempo workout or at tempo, um, what uh, you know, what what are they asking their body to do? What's what's the the kind of end goal there from a training point of view? So I'll, th- I'll throw it out back to it depends. Um, there's a few different ways you can um, you can go about what you want to get out of there. One of the more predominant ways that I utilize tempo for things is more on developing better muscular endurance. So that's again, a term where when you get to the end of a long ride, you need your body's, your muscles to be able to respond to continue going harder. And part of that is just building fatigue resistance in those muscles. Hopefully the, um, in that case, riding tempo, it's building fatigue resistance in the the type one fibers. You're putting them under increased stress for longer durations. Um, that's, I think, the most beneficial way to go about it. Unless you're a domestic for a world world tour team whose job is to ride on the front all day, 
that's not a, a session that should be done super frequently. Um, again, there's, and there's a, there's a few other ways you can go about it that you can do. I, I generally like to mix tempo efforts in with, with varied cadences. So either high cadence tempo. So work on basically improving your form by pedaling really fast at that power. So the force per pedal stroke is low, but you're spinning quickly or the opposite have higher torque, higher force tempo, where again, that focuses the the muscular endurance. But basically, if you're going to be riding at tempo at all, you should know why you're doing it other than just zone two feels too easy or I don't feel good enough to go at threshold or sweet spot up this climb. If you ever find yourself not being able to hit the zone four, you should not just nestle into zone three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that analogy or that example of um, a domestique at the front of the the peloton sitting at tempo all day, that's that's a good one. But um, yeah, ultimately, that's not the goal for uh, the vast, vast majority of us. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about Sweet Spot just for a moment. You you said earlier how um, for you, Sweet Spot sits um, just below threshold. Uh, yeah, just below threshold or FTP. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is a, a term that I've seen banded about quite a bit over the last few years in terms of offering a lot of bang for your buck when it comes to time in the saddle training. So um, what is sweet spot and is that true or have I been doing it wrong over the last couple of years? There's plenty of different training philosophies and, and I'll go back to saying that the same training doesn't work for everyone. I think there is good evidence that there are people who are really respond really well to sweet spot and there are people who do not respond well to sweet spot. I know from personal experience, I'm not someone who responded well to sweet spot training. If I wanted to improve my threshold, sweet spot did not do it for me. It did make me nice and tired and fatigued, um, but it didn't. My body didn't adapt as we would hope. So, I I don't want to disregard or say that sweet spot training doesn't work. But I don't think it's necessarily a, a catch all that everyone will benefit from. Um, The idea with sweet spot is you're riding just below threshold. So as soon as you go over threshold, the stress on your body becomes a good deal greater. So riding 2% over threshold compared to 2% below threshold, it's not an even even distribution. Riding 2% below threshold is significantly easier than riding 2% above. It's one of the rare areas where a very small change in power can have a pretty drastic impact on your body's physiology and what you're what you're asking it to do. And I think that's one of the issues that a lot of people get sweet spot wrong when they do it is they want to ride at threshold or maybe even a little above when they're supposed to be under threshold. The benefit of riding below it is you're pretty much trying to max out your body's ability to clear and utilize lactate as a fuel source. Um, you go over that value and you get an excess of that. You have a limited amount of time you can spend above it. The stress on your body is really high. So again, the goal is to be coming up to that, but not quite tipping over and getting your body better at at clearing stuff out. I've found that most of the people I work with, you can get essentially the same physiological response in a more, um, instead of just riding, say, a 20-minute block at 96% of threshold, you would do a 20-minute block, but the majority of it is at 90% of threshold, but you have 20 or 30-second surges of maximal aerobic power levels, like well above. You kind of flood your body with the things you want to force it to clear out, and then you ride 
comfortably below threshold force your body to be working hard but have to work extra to clear out all this additional stuff you've just added to it and then you hit it again i think it's more applicable to general group riding or racing that you need to be able to surge recover surge recover the the general physiological response is similar and it's a lot easier to perform and not have to ride that knife's edge of just below threshold for a long period of time. You giving yourself enough of a buffer that you're above it and below it by a good enough margin that if you know what your threshold is, you shouldn't be able to, even if you inflate your FTP by 5%, you shouldn't mess up this workout where that overinflation by 5% in a sweet spot session could really be much more stress than what you are intending. Mm. I think that idea of what happens to your body when you do go just that little bit above threshold is something that a lot of people can relate to and is is really interesting i think we'll probably come onto that in more detail in a future episode but over the course of the last 10 minutes or so we've we've gone from endurance to tempo um up to sweet spot we've spoken about ftp and threshold before so we're going to jump above that now for our ninth and penultimate term and that's vo2 max this is a key one it's one that you mentioned in brief earlier So what is VO2 max? Because this, again, is another one that's often used to warn as a badge of honour. And we hear of the um, superhuman VO2 max figures that are produced um, by some of the the world's best riders. Um, But what is VO2 max and why uh, why should I care as someone that does just a few hours on the bike each week? So I'll I'll answer that second part first, and I'd say you probably shouldn't care. (laughs) <laughs> well, there we go that's we, that's we, i say we should skip we on move, but no, move let's, on to let's the, stick yeah. with it <laughs> yeah no i and w- when i say that i mean that the exact number value it's not this is someone who i've done hundreds of lab tests for people i've been through like probably a couple at least a dozen vo2 max tests myself where i'm the subject but it's what it is it's a measure of the amount of oxygen your body is consuming to produce in this case, power to produce watts. You, We've talked about there's a, a limit where as soon as you run out of oxygen, your body has to start producing power anaerobically. Um, VO2 max is really, okay, at your peak oxygen consumption, how much are you using? Um, it's worth noting that VO2 max is sport specific. It's not person specific. So cross-country skiers have the highest VO2 maxes in the world because they're using both their muscles and their arms and a lot of their core to propel themselves forward. Whereas cyclists, if you're riding a bike properly, you're just using your legs and your core to keep engaged. So as you engage more muscles, you those muscles need oxygen. So VO2 max can will be higher. So I think there's some people who who just conflate like, oh, this is my absolute VO2 max. It's no, you need to know it's sport specific. Um, within that, it is a measure that can give you some insight um, when you talk about relative VO2 max versus absolute VO2 max. So absolute VO2 max is just the number of liters per minute your body's using. Relative, which is the number that most people think about when they hear VO2 max, is per body weight. So it's milliliters of O2 per kilogram of body weight per minute. So the the units are pretty, um, it's got a lot of little little letters and and numbers at the end of that uh, when you write it scientifically. Um, But basically that relative one allows you to compare a six foot two, 200 pound person to a five foot one, 110 pound person. Um, Because 
the the idea is that the relative VO2 max just shows your endurance capacity. High VO2 max is needed to produce energy aerobically. And as we talked about throughout this whole episode, right, like producing energy aerobically using oxygen is really key. So the more oxygen you can use at your maximum, the more you have available at lower intensities. What's always from like lab tests and stuff that I've seen, it's it's so fascinating. You see these like eye-watering numbers from world tour riders about like sitting at um, you know, 300 watts for six hours. And you think you can work out that that's about four and a half liters of oxygen per minute. Um, and you think there are some people, they're absolutely VO2 max when they max out, they don't even crack four. And it's because those riders who are doing that, they can max out at six liters. So it's all proportional. You can view some training as a portion or at an intensity relative to VO2 max. That's historically a lot of scientific literature. That's what, um, for studies they do. It's problematic because there's other components that are really key to actual, how we define zones. So like, like we talked about before, maximal aerobic power might be different for two people with the same FTP. That's the exact same with VO2 max. You can have two people with the exact same VO2 max, but one of them has a higher sustained value. They can sit at 93% of VO2 max for an hour. The other person might sit at 85% for an hour. So it is a factor, but there's other things related to it that are really significant. I'll just give a more relative anecdote about a certain American Vuelta spanner, recent winner who we tested in our lab back, um, back in 2017. Um, he had absolutely eye-watering max VO2, VO2 max, like for altitude, it was ridiculous, but his sustained percent at that time, whatever, six years ago was really bad. It was really bad. And what that showed us is he had a lot of room to improve that he had a lot of ability. He had this massive ceiling and he wasn't anywhere close to, to tapping to it. So, and I think that it's shown that I don't think his VO2 max has probably increased since we tested him there, but his sustained value has certainly gone up since 2016. And that was, again, knowing that for him, it helped guide some of the training decisions that his coaches made. So, for him, it was a useful insight, but for you and me, it's not necessarily the most relevant. And just on that that final point, or, or the point before that, in terms of um, that American Vuelta Espana winner, I was going to ask whether you can train your VO2 max. It's often described as being something that's set or established genetically. So, firstly, can you can you train it up, or more to the point, is what you're training actually the uh, ability for you to ride at VOT max or close to VOT max for longer? So you can do both. You can train to increase VO2 max. As we've talked about, the more muscles involved, the more um, oxygen they'll be using. So if you do specific work to like basically add more muscle, basically gain weight to add more muscle, then your absolute VO2 max can increase in that sense. Um, the flip side of that is your relative VO2 max might not increase because you weigh more. And then again, the inverse is true. You might have a drop in VO2 max, or I'd say you can have the exact same absolute VO2 max, but if you lose some weight, then your relative VO2 max will have increased. Um, I think the big thing is there's a bit of changing there, but again, it doesn't really matter to your to your point, like what, how much power you can produce at VO2 max can absolutely train. You can go from 
producing 400 watts of VO2 max to 425 watts at VO2 max, even though the oxygen, the absolute amount, relative amount can stay exactly the same. Your body's become, you've trained your body to be more efficient at using that oxygen. And so that's where we use the term maximal aerobic power. That's the metric that is important to care about if you're talking about VO2 max, because it should track relatively closely to VO2 max, but it also delineates when you have those changes of just becoming more efficient. So like VO2 max, can you train it? Maybe. Does it really matter? I would say no, because you can train your maximal aerobic power and that should be the metric for that energy system, for that sort of thinking about how much oxygen you can consume. That's the metric that you should be focused on. And just finally, for someone who's trying to visualize what VO2 max or being at VO2 max feels like, if you're out on a ride and you try and ride at your the, the, the kind of absolute maximum power that you can for, say, three to five minutes, is that roughly the kind of area that we're talking about in terms of what you're asking your body to do? Yeah, I would say five minutes is like the the right duration for establishing that basically what power at VO2 max would be. Um when we test it in the lab, there's several different protocols. The the standard is the good old ramp test, just one minute stages increasing power every minute until you hit failure. That's a pretty it's maybe not the best way to get the actual absolute VO2 max for everyone. There's there's a good deal of evidence that you kind of do a, a weird reverse ramp. You start crazy hard, drop down, and then maintain power. That can give the same person a higher VO2 max reading. Um, but I would say that doesn't really matter. Again, it's if you can just repeat the test, if you do a ramp test to see your VO2 max, you can still just do that on your own. You don't need to be in a lab to do that. You can say, okay, I hit failure at the 400-watt stage. I've gone and done some training. I come back. I've now hit failure at halfway into the 400 watt stage. I made it into the 400 watts. Like you can just, you have a benchmark to give you a proxy for it, but it's generally speaking, when you're at that power, it's very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think whether we know we've been there or not specifically at VO2 max, I think uh, everyone's had that feeling of uh, absolutely blowing out after a a few minutes on the bike. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, well, that's VO2 max covered. So let's go on to our 10th and final term. And actually, this was one that you mentioned back at the the very start when we introduced the idea of a structured training plan, and that's periodization. So what is periodization when it comes to training? So the periodization is really thinking about how you're assembling structured training. I kind of like to view periodization as sort of like building blocks. You have a very intentful design around increasing workload, increasing workload, increasing workload, dropping off workload significantly to let your body recover and, and following that there's sort of, you know, the reason there's a, basically a human generally speaking limit, like grand tours didn't start at three weeks, but they've kind of nestled into three weeks because that's essentially the limit of what the human body an elite human body can handle for continuous energy expenditure and energy intake. Those guys, you can't do a four-week grand tour because even their their bodies will just kind of start to shut down. So generally when we think of periodization, you think about a lot of it's traditionally a three-week block of hard work and then a one-week recovery block. As you get older, that needs to shift and there's a few different ways to go about it. But the whole idea around periodization is having periods of increased workload and periods of decreased workload so that you're 
getting the most improvement over time. You're making the most of the the work that you're doing. So if someone, you know, use me as an example, if I've got five to six, maybe eight hours to train in a given week and I've got a, uh, a goal that I'm looking to hit in a few months' time, um, to put some rough numbers on it, how should I try and structure my training? Is it, a, is it about volume? Is it about the amount of hours or is it about the intensity? It's, it's certainly a combination of the two. Um, generally speaking, it's going to be really dependent on what your goal is. What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to tee up for an event that's a lot longer? Are you teeing up for maybe a time trial series? Are you, you just want to do another fitness test and see that you've improved? Do you want to, you know, go on your local group ride and, and win the, the town town line sprint? It really, what you do with those six to eight hours a week is really going to depend on what you're aiming for, but it's certainly the focus shouldn't just be total hours and the focus shouldn't just be intensity. You need to focus on, okay, for this week, I need to build up certain things. I'd say generally, you know, the early weeks in a block, a periodization block would be higher intensity. As you get to later weeks in that periodization phase, you're more fatigued. So your ability to do some super high intensity might be limited. So you want to potentially shift a bit. And when you get to the last week of a, if you're in a three week block for periodization, then you're going to be fatigued. And sometimes you need to just do lower intensity stuff that final week, or sometimes you need to do like properly push yourself in those instances where you're already fatigued and you need to like really dig deep and go beyond. Um, as a coach, one thing that I always do when I start working with people is you need to, you want to push up to that limit at the end of a block, but you Obviously, you don't want to push too hard, but basically, I always would have an experimental week of or block of okay, the final week. I I wouldn't tell them this because it messes with, you know, this is a blind blind test basically. But push, give them enough that I think it's gonna break them by just a little bit. Like I'm expecting that Sunday, that final Sunday workout, that they're gonna load up the file and say, "Sorry, I couldn't finish these intervals. Couldn't do it." Like, and like eight times out of ten, that is exactly what happens. Um, but I've had instances where the person just absolutely smokes that final week and are like, yeah, no, I'm good. And that's when I'm like, okay, you can handle a lot more than I was expecting. So now I know that this overreaching phase, which is the goal of a periodization that that's okay. We need to actually up it next time because you want to get to the end of these blocks fatigued, but not absolutely smashed. And generally speaking, if someone was looking to build their own training plan or, or, work with a coach if you're working with a coach obviously they do a lot of the hard work for you in terms of putting the build, build building blocks in place but if you are putting together your own training plan or at least trying to give your plan or you're writing some structure would you generally always recommend looking at a periodized approach yeah i would i don't think there's there's other methodologies for what you do in in those those times like the training methodology like i know we we we're potentially going to talk about polarized training here. That's that's a methodology of how you're divvying up the work done in a week. But even polarized training will still use periodization as a philosophy. If you see a plan that doesn't have any clear breaks in basically recovery time, then it's not periodization and it's something you should probably avoid. Well, you mentioned polarized training then. That was my last question because periodized training and polarized training, they just look and sound fairly similar but what is actually the difference there because it sounds like we shouldn't be getting the two confused 
Yeah, they are. They are different. One is a, a method of structuring um, blocks of of work completed over, say, a month. That's periodization. And polarized training is a methodology of of each ride. What are you doing? The idea with polarized training is you're either doing really easy zone one, zone two, or basically maximal. You're not doing any sweet spot or threshold work. That's sort of the the crux of of polarized training. And again, there are people who that works very well for them. I think I fall into the group of, I responded, like I said, I didn't respond to sweet spot. I responded to much lower intensity and then really, really high intensity stuff. So that would be classified as the the training I responded to was polarized training. Um, again, everyone's going to be a bit different. Some people just don't respond to that. I know this only happened once, but I had one athlete um, who legitimately only responded to volume, any amount of intensity, they would just be terrible, but you had them do a 25 hour week and they would be crushing races. Again, that's, that's not usual, um, but it does happen. And some people, and it, it is sort of, you kind of need to write, break some eggs. If you want to make an omelet, you have to try different things and it's easy to just be like, Oh no, I'm pretty sure this is working for me. So I'm just going to stick with it, but you need to try something new. You need to risk a month of training to see like, Hey, I'm going to try this different method, see how I feel about it. Like that's a really important thing that people, you should be confident in being uncertain about your training from time to time. Don't just stick with what you think works for you. You have to actually try different things to know for sure. Well, I think that final point actually, that's a really good place to leave things. And we've covered a lot of ground over the last hour or so, um, teed up a lot of topics that we're going to talk about in future and also delved into a few areas that perhaps we didn't expect to today. Uh, to, to tease actually what's coming up over the rest of this series, over the, the course of the next five weeks, on episode two, we're going to delve deeper into fitness training and why there's more to FTP than meets the eye. That's certainly something that we've spoken about briefly in this episode. But they're going to move on to how to use your training zone, so the training zones that come out of that fitness testing and the overall importance of structured training and how to build some structure into your riding, how to get the results you're looking for. We'll then move on to base training versus intervals. Again, this is an area that I think and we will cover this in the podcast, but I think seen quite a lot of uh, change and evolution in thinking over the the last few years and how to balance your training for maximal results. And then finally, we will end by looking at some common training mistakes and training myths in our fifth and final episode. Max, it's been great having you back on the podcast and really looking forward to the next uh, four or five weeks and having you on on, uh, every episode. We've also got some guests joining us for some of those episodes, but thank you. It's been uh, fascinating having you on. Yeah, always happy to talk this stuff. So thank you for having me. Great. And thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. As I say, we've got lots more coming up with Mac and the team at Wahoo. So do tune in. And if there are any specific questions that you want answered over the course of the next five weeks, if you're listening to this as soon as it drops, then email us at podcast at bikeradar.com and we will try our best to get those answered while we have Mac's time. Thank you once again for listening. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.